I'm Teresa Wiesar, your host of One in 10. In today's episode, The Unique Vulnerability of Youth Athletes, I speak with Courtney Keel, former elite athlete and now legal counsel to survivors. Over the past five years, sexual abuse scandals in sport, Olympic and otherwise, have continuously been in the news. Whether swimming, taekwondo, or most famously gymnastics, the variety of sports that have had such scandals point to a very uncomfortable truth, that sport, and especially elite sport, has inherent child protection issues that are cross-cutting, and that these unique vulnerabilities require unique prevention strategies to keep youth athletes safe. What coaching strategies create toxic cultures which discourage kids from speaking up about concerns? How does the lack of accountability at the club level allow offenders to move location and keep right on coaching? How does the weight of adult expectations, coaches, parents, and yes, us, all Olympic viewers, make it so very difficult for kids to disclose even the most harrowing abuse? And most importantly, where is there reason for hope and action to create a future for elite sport and indeed all sport that is healthy and safe? I know you'll be as interested in those answers as I was. Please take a listen. Courtney, welcome to One in 10. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, the last time I saw you, we met actually at the game over commission where I was a commissioner and you were testifying, you and your colleagues in front of us. And although you were not one of the victims of the Larry Nasser case, I think you shed some really important light on the dynamics in elite sport and between coaches and athletes. Can you just talk a little bit about what motivated you to come forward and tell commissioners um, about your own experiences? Yeah, I was an elite gymnast myself. And I was sexually abused by my coach for a couple of years. And I came forward when I was just before I turned 14. So um, in 2004, just to give some context, I guess, to time. And at the time, I didn't really hear much about abuse in sports, to be honest. Social media, everything was not what it is now. And I was just a teenager. So From that time on, actually, I got together with another one of the survivors in my case, and we started sharing our story everywhere that we could, because we thought that raising awareness was was really important and people needed to look at this and and talk about it a little bit more. So um, I've been doing this since then, a very long time, and I'm now also an attorney that represents victim survivors in civil litigation. So, um, you know, I think... More awareness, more hearing from victim survivors is always really important. And that's why I continue to share every opportunity I can. Well, and we appreciate you sharing it here as well. I think that, you know, one of the things that struck me about the testimony over the days in which we heard it, including your own, was that while we were there to talk about sexual abuse, people also described a lot of emotional abuse and physical abuse and also I don't know, you would almost call it medical neglect, you know, encouraging people to perform with injuries and other kinds of things. Can you talk a little bit about how this overall, gosh, I'm just kind of at a loss for words about what to call it, but 
this sort of atmosphere in which different forms of abuse or even neglect could sort of thrive, how that may have paved the way for sexual abuse in some cases. Oh, completely. Um, I'm so happy that you brought that up because I think it's something that I always try to bring attention to. I know when we talk about abuse, particularly abuse in sports and children, sexual abuse gets a lot of attention as it should. But what's interesting about my own case and what I also gathered from speaking to survivors in this case and and other cases in general is that a lot of us would not categorize the sexual abuse as sort of the the quote unquote worst part of what we experience mm. because the things that affect us to this day, while the sexual abuse as well, but the the emotional abuse. And that's something that I always spoke about from the very beginning, even talking to my parents, I would say it's really not the worst part. The worst part is, you know, all of these other things that I'm still experiencing. So how it kind of paves the way for that, I think these sports, we have sort of just like a, a culture, right? It's a, it's its own little culture. It's, it's all of these things that are normalized that do really, as you said, pave the way and sort of make you a prime target for sexual abuse as well. But some of the things that I, I would look at, you know, especially being an elite athlete early on is um, the isolation, especially in gymnastics, you start very young. If that's a path that you want to take to be an elite athlete, you have to commit very, very young. So most elite gymnasts aren't even going to school full-time in person, you're homeschooling or you're doing something. So to that extent, the isolation is really unavoidable because that's a part of it, committing to the sport. So I would say um, that's one thing, right? That would make someone a prime target for for any type of abuse is that isolation. I think being committed to a goal to the extent that you need to in a sport like gymnastics, you know, like for myself, which I'm going to keep kind of pulling back to my own experience sure. because I'm most comfortable speaking about that directly. But I was so committed to the sport. You know, I had a goal and I was told that I needed to do certain things to achieve that goal and and nothing was going to stop me, um, including speaking out about anything that was making me uncomfortable. I just, I was being told as a child that this is what I needed to do. This is what I needed to endure. And I didn't know any better. You know, that obviously makes you a prime target. I think for people who don't have an experience with elite sport, you know, maybe their only exposure is watching the Olympics on TV. You don't necessarily see some of the things we're talking about, right? It's hidden in a certain way. You don't see the way that a coach is talking with athletes or you don't hear them tell an athlete to do something that might not be good for them, actually, or to call them names or give them a hard time about their weight or any of the other things that got described to us as a part of the hearings, as a part of the Larry Nassar case and all the other cases that have come forward both before and since. And I'm just wondering, you know, based on that, what do you feel like at this point that the public still isn't paying enough attention to or doesn't know enough about for that culture that you're talking about that seems like it had some issues, to put it mildly? Well, I think what's hard too is we still don't quite have a sense of what the right way to do things is. We're still sort of looking for a clear example of, okay, in gymnastics, for example, 
how can we have a coach talk to these athletes about things like healthy eating? Like food is such a big issue. But at the same time, in gymnastics, you can't ignore issues like your weight, like your physical body, because those are things that if it changes, it's going to affect how you flip, how you rotate, and it's going to affect your safety. So I think we still kind of struggle with issues like that. Like, what's the right way to do things? We're still looking for that. Uh Uh-oh, it looks like it froze. Okay, that was interesting. I'm using my phone as a mobile hotspot, so we're going to see how that goes. (laughs) So thank you, Courtney. Oh, looks good so far. (laughs) Okay, apologies. I was rambling anyway, so. (laughs) No, you weren't rambling at all, at all. I actually thought what you were saying was super interesting. I want to get back to it where where I stopped hearing what you were saying. Okay. One of the things you were noting is that we don't have any really good examples of someone coaching gymnast well, right? Talking about things the right way, like food and healthy eating and those things and being successful, which... I hadn't really thought about it, but that's a very interesting thing. And talk a little bit about, you know, food as the example, because I think that, again, for those of us who know nothing about this, we know that it's bad to make fun of someone for their weight, you know, shaming them or, you know, watching every little thing that they eat and hounding them about it. But there is a piece of this that, as you point out, is a legitimate area of inquiry, right? So talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Yeah. I mean, I can even talk about my own personal experience because I think my coaches were not, the food issue was not problematic Sure, with how they coached me. I would be asked, you know, certain times what I ate, Mm, which mm. um, I think there's good ways you can do that. And there's kind of bad ways. So I guess one way I I will always remember from when I was young, um, it was a Saturday morning practice. We were all lined up, warming up. And they had us go down the line and say what we had for breakfast. So that's probably not great. I had a donut that morning, which (laughs) um, (laughs) is still funny to think about because I just, you know, after that point, I really probably didn't have sweets for a very long time. But um, I was asked that. I said I had a donut and there was that sense of shame there. So I would say that's a way that you don't want to do it. But, you know, eating a donut before practice I probably didn't feel great either, you know, which it would be helpful to know what are some healthier options. For our listeners, we're in the middle of a storm, (laughs) which has taken us offline a couple of times. So, so no, thanks for your patience. But one of the things that you were saying, which I think is interesting, is that when somebody hears an account of people talking about food, they can immediately think any talk about it is terrible. But as you were pointing out to me before the storm cut us off, One reason someone would talk about that is because it affects the way you're actually able to perform. So not about thinness, but around safety. And totally. Yeah. And that's something that if you're a non-athlete and a non-gymnast, you'd have no idea about. So, but to your main point that there aren't good examples yet of people that create essentially an abuse-free, positive environment that that are widely spread and known as a coaching methodology, I think that that is a really interesting point and something for national governing boards who are busily scurrying around trying to think about how they deal with things like liability and other things. 
it's like, yes, but how are you promoting positive examples and positive models out there for people? So I think you've raised a really interesting point. Let me sort of change the channel here for a minute and just, I'm wondering also, you know, we have seen so many abuse cases of all varieties, right? Physical abuse, sexual abuse that have affected so many different sports. While USA Gymnastics and gymnastics as a sport has gotten a lot of attention, I just remember, again, from sitting in the hearings, people were coming from Taekwondo, from, you know, swimming, from, it felt like almost every sport had been represented at one time or another, unfortunately, as having had these same kinds of dynamics. And I'm wondering, when you think about a common thread, you know, in the stories that you hear from other adult survivors, what is it that is making sport overall, elite gymnastics, particularly vulnerable to abuse? I think it's some of the things I might've been talking about earlier. I'm not sure if we've got lost when we were cutting out, but um, I think there's a power imbalance always, right? We have those and you have these these coaches and you have a child who has a dream or something that they want to be good at. And they're being told that they need to do certain things in order to achieve those goals. And you you don't really question it. You just, that's what you have to do. That's what you're going to do. So I think when you have these lack of boundaries with these adults and these positions of power, there's always a, a risk that that power is going to be abused and that they're going to cross those boundaries in the in in a way that's going to cause a lot of harm. So I think that's definitely something that we see. But also in sports like gymnastics, um, the lack of physical autonomy, I would say, over your body, there's sort of this mind-body disconnect in a lot of sports. I think your body is a tool. Your body is a thing to shape and to, to get these, you know, to get to perform. Um, and gymnastics, that's something that you learn from a very young age. I think about being young and you're all sort of starting on the same level, but some girls or, you know, boys are just naturally more skilled, more physically able than others. And it's not anything that you do yourself, but that just kind of I think just starts this disconnect between you and your body and your body is a thing. Um, So when your body is, you know, when we're talking about sexual abuse, when your body is being touched, when you have this sort of core idea that your body is not your own, that your body is something that your coach can touch or manipulate or do whatever they need to do with, um, when you cross that line as a child, it's just not very clear to you. It's confusing, I would say. And I would say all the more so probably, as you're pointing out, in sports where there would be even legitimate reasons why a coach would position your body in a certain way or show you how to do something by having their hands on you someplace. I'm not talking about inappropriately, but I just mean it probably does sort of lower that sense of shock about, you know, why are you touching me or that sort of thing, which, you know, those of us, again, who haven't had that experience of somebody just put their hands on me, you know, you'd be more startled or recognize it as a boundary issue, which how would you? Exactly. Yeah. And you're not taught, you're not, I mean, now there's a lot more education and awareness around the good touch and bad touch, but know, going back to my own situation, I was 12 years old. I was homeschooled. I didn't 
you know, get curriculum in school about things like that. I think it's something my parents probably wish that they would have, mm. you know, talked about a lot more. Um, but I just, I didn't have that, that knowledge. And yeah, it's in gymnastics here, you know, I started when I was three and from the very beginning, exactly like you said, they're putting your body in physical positions and it's, it's not to hurt you. It's to help you. It's to show you what your body needs to do. So. It's so fascinating what you were talking about a minute ago about viewing your body, even from a very early age as a tool to be shaped essentially, and have this sort of, in an interesting way, kind of maybe even disconnect you from the sense that other people might have of something's wrong, you know, that something is happening because you're used to it being in pain and expected that some things aren't comfortable, or you're used to viewing it as needing some improvement and working toward that. It's just a very interesting twist that I think we're going to have to all think more carefully about when we're thinking about prevention programs, even with athletes, because there may be some points that need to be addressed that really athletes are going to only be the people who would know, oh, well, in this sport, we need to talk about this because there are boundary violations that those of us whose idea of sport is, I don't know, walking around the block with my dog like me would not pick up (laughs) on, you know, immediately. No, it's, it's something that is very different across different sports. After I stopped doing gymnastics, I became a pole vaulter and totally different experience. Interesting. Um, If I had grown up pole vaulting instead of doing gymnastics, there's a lot of things that would not have been normal to me as far as that physical touching, the physical contact. Interesting. You know, I'm wondering, all these years have elapsed since your own experience. And also, I mean, it's been four plus years since Nasser's sentencing. What have you seen overall in elite athletics, elite sport that you feel positive about, that you feel something has changed for the good? Is there anything? <laughs> if so, what is it? <laughs> I think I think the transparency. I mm. think awareness and transparency. And I feel silly talking about awareness. Um, I mm, feel it's like important. it's something I've I feel like it's something I'm always talking about. It's something that I felt like was needed, you know, back when I was young. Yes. Um, and you know, in the last 20 years, it's still it just we always need more, but I think we have more than ever right now. Um and this, you know this case and all of these cases has brought in a lot of attention to it and people are talking about it. So that's helpful. That's always going to help more people aware of the issues, have eyes on it, um, accountability. That's all great. I would say transparency as well is something that we're seeing more of. I mean, people are aware and they're demanding to see what's going on. They're demanding answers. You know, one of the things that happened with gymnastics is they started live streaming the training camps. And that was something that was totally closed off before you, you didn't have access to that. You didn't really know what was going on there. So I think those are positive changes, certainly. You know, it's interesting you talking about them um, live streaming camp. I mean, you just think about all the ways in which making something available like that in real time changes behavior you know, because people are aware they're being watched. And even if they weren't going to do anything abusive, just I'm sure it has changed the tone of some of the direction and coaching and other things. I think that's all to the good. You know, when you think about the national governing boards and you think about the USOPC, 
What do you see as areas in which, yes, they may have made some strides, but you you say, here's some areas where we still have room to grow. There's room for improvement here. Well, for me, even before we get there, I think the way I've always seen it is the limitations in all governing bodies in the USOPC. I mean, really their reach is far and wide when it comes to elite and those high levels of the sports. But beyond that, the lower levels, you know, the clubs that most kids are participating in and attending, they don't really have that much um, power to oversee what's going on on those levels. And I think that's always going to be a challenge when we're looking at, I guess, the what we expect of these national governing bodies and how much protection they can truly provide. Yeah. Can you talk about that for people who don't understand the structure? Because I felt like I got uh, quite an education along the way because I didn't understand the structure as well. So what relationship does a national governing board have to the local gym that someone is sending their kid off to who's age three, four, five, six, seven, um, and maybe their kiddo is not a star athlete, but is just enjoying themselves. What relationship, if any, do they have? Not much, to be honest, to that low level gymnast, let's say someone who's just like, you know, not competing to be on a national team. The national governing body is responsible for selecting the individuals to represent the country and those sports for Olympics and international competitions. So beyond that, typically what it looks like is an athlete, if they're going to compete at any formal level, will become a a member of the national governing body. So like I used to always, you know, I would be a member of USA Gymnastics. I would get a little membership card. That was pretty much it. You know, the club itself that's operating is probably a member gym. And so they have to register with the national governing body. Um, but you could have coaches if you wanted to at, at the club level that weren't even registered with the national governing body that are coaching there. There's no way that the national governing body can regulate who is actually coaching at a gym. That's up to the owner of the club itself. Well, and to your point, there is sort of a fatal flaw there, right? Because organizationally, the gym or club might be a member, but if it's up to the owner who the coaches are, and the coaches don't have to be a member, then their ability to reach all the way down to that level and address sort of safety issues, I think, as you're pointing out, can be problematic. Where does safe sport fit into all of this? I mean, I think some of our listeners are aware that they exist, but I think this is one of those other things that because it's not that old, it's several years old, but it hasn't been around for decades and decades, a lot of folks either haven't heard about it or they're not sure how it fits into the equation. Yeah, I think safe sport is still working out how it fits into the equation. Um, So safe sport is responsible for investigating claims of abuse within the national governing bodies and is also responsible for implementing like training to the national governing bodies. I see safe sport as extremely limited as far as what they can actually do for someone, you know, Let's just for example, I guess I've had some cases because I'm, as I said, I'm an attorney that represents survivors where we've had the opportunity with the survivor to participate in safe sport or not to participate. And, you know, what I have to remind them is ultimately the only 
thing safe sport can do at the outcome is to ban this person from being a member. That's not, as I just, you know, was talking about, that's not going to prevent if an owner wants to hire this person, whether they're a member or not, they can. And that's not something safe sport has any jurisdiction. It's, it's literally the membership, which doesn't carry that much weight. If you're at a high level, if you, you know, if you're um, competing for the national team, that's a different story, but that's such a small number of people. Right. I think that's what people would find surprising here because they're imagining that there's a much deeper reach, but, and for elite athletes, yes, you'd want someone who was a member, you would look for that. And if somebody's banned, that would be serious, especially if they were, had a long reputation of being an elite coach and they were banned, that would be a serious punishment because it would affect their livelihood. But for down at lower levels, somebody could float gym to gym to gym, right? And if they were banned, it might not have any real effect and they might not even be aware that the person had been banned, right? So you could have a situation where what you are hoping will come from one of those hearings And as an outcome, I mean, it's not to say it's bad to do, but it's not going to be a substitute for criminal justice, for example, or civil, you know, um, any sort of civil judgments as well. So interesting. So, and I think they also just don't have, I'm sorry to interrupt. I I think safe sport has gotten, you know, since they started, since they were established, they've gotten so many reports, which is great that people are doing that, but they don't have the resources to even give each of those cases the time that they would need. And then, like I said, going back to what I I think is a real issue is what authority they actually have to do anything. What mm-hmm. that outcome, how much is that really doing to protect athletes? Let's talk about the legal landscape for a moment, because as you've pointed out, you know, you're now an attorney. It's come full circle. You're now um, advocating for and representing Um, other survivors. And so when you look at the legal landscape and the protections that it offers, or at least the remedies, I would say more than protections, perhaps in some cases, you know, it's another shifting environment, right? Where there's been a lot of reform over the last while, but still a ways to go. Talk about just your own assessment about, you know, where things have landed at this point and where you would like to see more reform or less of something you'd like to see less of. Hmm. This is hard for me um, to answer, honestly, as a survivor. It's something I struggle with. Uh, It's the system that we have. There's only so much that you can do for people who have experienced this type of abuse uh, or harm. In most cases, if we can't do anything, you know, if they can't, the person can't be prosecuted, the remedy is civil, civil money damages in the end. And you just can't, you can't repair, you can't give those years back, you can't give any of it back. Um, so that's always just frustrating, knowing that or feeling that there's only so much that you can do for someone. But I do think that what's what's coming, at least I hope, is it's been happening over the last several decades is that employers, institutions are taking this more seriously as far as what they're doing to make sure that their employees and volunteers and agents are trained, um, that they know about reporting and they know how to do that. I mean, and, and that they're making sure that people are actually doing what they're supposed to as far as those training and those policies and procedures. 
that are in place to protect people. But I think, I mean, we always need more of more of more people actually doing the right thing when you're in that situation, when it is a, a coworker, a colleague or something, and you're seeing that they're doing something wrong. That's what I see a lot of my own work is people's own uh, relationships kind of getting in the way of doing what they should be doing to make sure that a child or an individual is protected when they need to be. I think it's interesting what your two things about what you were saying. One is that, you know, as much as we can try to use the legal system to help folks, and I think it's important, you know, just as you do, but at the same time, it can't restore back to you time lost, years lost. You know, it can't make it as though it never happened to you. All it can do is help, you know, pay for therapy in a lot of cases. That's really the limits of what can be achieved. Um, and some of those other concrete harms in that way. So focusing on prevention is important so that fewer, you know, survivors wind up existing over time and thinking about how we do that in a way where, you know, we're educating kids, we're educating coaches, we're educating parents. But also you raised an important point about bystanders. Talk a little bit about this issue of, you know, think about it in a gym environment. Do you find that it's common that somebody else I'm not thinking administration. I'm thinking somebody else who is really that person's peer was aware of what went on or just struggled to do the right thing and report. Yeah, I think it's not even necessarily struggling to do the right thing when reporting. That certainly exists. But, you know, like, I think a lot of times, especially when we're talking about sexual abuse, right, there's not witnesses to that. So to know what's going on, um, but they've probably seen other, you know, red flags that this person crossing those boundaries, you know, isolation control, all those types of things that they would see. But I think the harder thing, which we even saw, you know, in the Nasser case was people believing that this person did something mm, so horrible, you know, mm, so mm. horrible. It's really hard for people when it's someone that they feel like they know that they've been around um, to just quickly get on board and support the survivors. That's still something that's just, I see it in all my cases. Um, that's so hard for the the friends and the colleagues to just quickly, it, it takes, you know, like in Nasser, once they found the the child pornography, that was sort of a different level, I think, for people. It was like concrete. Okay, here's here's something to flip people, but it, it was not immediate. So what I'm thinking, Courtney, as you're talking is in working with parents of survivors, particularly in cases of incest and other things, one of the things that professionals like myself, you know, have learned is you can waste a lot of time trying to convince a parent, a non-offending parent, but sometimes you're just, sometimes what they need to do is protect their child, whether or not they believe it. And so I wonder if there's something to be said for training people about what, it's not really about whether you believe it right this minute. There's a set of things you need to do, whether or not you believe it, you know, because mm -hmm. your belief may change over time, but protecting this person right now is the critical factor. And I think that in my own experience, I can say that that kind of takes a certain pressure off a caregiver to feel like they need to argue with you or debate the point about the validity of the belief. 
And so I just wonder if there's something for those of us who work on prevention and who do prevention training, is there something where we need to just say, if you're feeling stunned when you hear the information or you're feeling shocked or you feel like I can't believe it, that's a normal feeling, but you need to set that aside, you know, and still make the report irrespective of that, because it's not really about you getting to a point of believing it before you make a report. I think that's so important. I, I, I do agree. That's something that's lacking as far as at least what I've seen when people are trained about how to report these issues that explicitly being said and put out there that this is going to be hard. This might be hard. You might not want to believe it. All of those things, normalizing that initial reaction, I think would be really, really helpful. I mean, no one wants to believe that they selected a coach not. for their child or that, you know, they've married a person who is dangerous in that way. And so I think that, you know, the more that we help people understand that this, you know, we're not asking you to second guess yourself or suddenly feel guilty or any of those other things. We're just like focusing on the kid right in that moment about what they need from us in that moment can be helpful in turning the conversation around. Well, you know, Courtney, when you think about where we have to go from here and what you would like to see, whether it's in the sport or policymakers or just in general in the public discourse, what do you think, if you could just sort of fast forward us five years from now, what would you like to see? What would you like to be different than it is right now? I think what I would like is more resources accessible for younger people. We're always talking about keeping kids safe, but it needs to be accessible for them. The information, the tools, where to go, who to reach out to, what good and bad looks like, um, resources, just more support. I think that's something that I would like to see all around for, for athletes and for kids. So what have I not asked you that I should have, or is there something else you were talking about the fact that you've been, you know, advocating as long as you have and talking about this all the time? Is there something that you'd like to make sure that our listeners know that I haven't covered? I don't even know where I would start with it, but I just think the conversation about um, parents mm. and sort of parents role in all of this, I think it's a little complicated to address in a couple of sentences. But it's just something that I, I, I know I, I wish that we had been able to, to focus on that a little bit more with the um, commission. And I think that's something that the commissioners wanted to, to get into a little bit more to sort of look at the dynamics with the parents involved. But um, yeah, sorry. I don't really know. I don't really have anything to say. I just <laughs> No, I, listen, I think that, as you know, the commissioners are hoping that that will still um, be addressed at some future point, because we agree yeah, with so. that there's, there's a, there's a conversation there to have about that. But, you know, you're a new parent. So yeah. talk a little bit about, you know, what, what do you think that parents who are contemplating their kids being involved in sport in this way, in a, in a serious way, not just, you know, pick up soccer out in the street. Mm -hmm. What do you think they should be thinking about? What do you think they should be reflecting on? What do you think they should be keeping an eye out for to make sure that it is a healthy experience for their kids? I think like physically, as a parent, physically being there is really important to the extent that you can. Um, and 
making sure that your child knows that you are a safe person to go to about anything. I don't quite know how I'm going to do that as a mom just yet, but my parents did that. My parents were that for me. And I had no doubt when I was ready to report to them that I was going to be supported and believed. I think that's going to be one of the things that I really strive for as a parent is to make sure that my, my daughter is able to, to communicate with me about anything and physically being present, checking in, making sure that they have support that they need in any way, um, like counseling. And, you know, I want her to be able to express herself. I want her to be able to speak up. Those are the things I really want for her. So um, that's what I'm going to try my best to do as a new mom. I think that one of the things, you know, Nessie, now you're making me think back to those hearings and what else people (laughs) were talking about. And one of the things that jogged in my memory, speaking of parenting around this, is I lived in Colorado Springs for a number of years. And when I got ready to move, I sold my home and I sold it um, actually some years after I moved. But anyway, I sold it to someone who had moved there with their family because one of their kids was an elite figure skater. And they had upended their family and moved them from another state and moved the whole family there because, as you know, that's where the Olympic Training Center is. And there's a lot of great coaching that centers itself around Colorado Springs, especially for winter sports and things like that. At any rate, I remember at the time, and this is way before I was aware of NASA and all that, but I remember thinking at the time, it was kind of unbelievable because they bought this house without seeing it and they just packed up their whole family. You know what I mean? I was just like, (laughs) that is a big investment. You know, I remember thinking that. And one of the things I was thinking when people were testifying at the commission hearing was, if you know that your family has made that kind of an investment in you, it would be very hard to bring them the news that you had been abused, you know? And I just reflect on not just the parent's role and being able and willing to hear that, but we put a lot on kids when we upend our lives in that way because they feel the weight of those decisions. I feel very confident that any kid who's had that experience feels like, oh my God, what's going to happen? You know, my family did all this for me or sacrificed for me or. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's certainly something I think when you get to the higher level of any sport, the, the money, you know, you're a kid, but you, you're aware of if that's a strain on your family. And a lot of times it is, and the, the time commitment, you know, driving you to and from practices, you know, in my case, homeschooling, my, my mom wasn't working because she was homeschooling me to take me to practice and, the doctor's appointments, you know, everything um, that comes with it. Yeah, you're you're very aware of the investment that not even just your family, but sort of like your community within the sport even has invested in you. They're expecting you to do something great. And it is a it is a lot to feel like you need to live up to that. Um, I haven't personally thought about that very much until just Don't. now. But <laughs> Don't give that any, another moment's reflection. But if it would that, bother you. I mean, that's I, I don't feel that you know as my my current self. But thinking, I could yeah. I could very easily go back to my twelve year old self and 
feel really sad about that. I, mean, I just feel like we're placing so much responsibility on these young, young kids, you know, to carry our hopes and dreams like a sack of cement on their back. And I feel like, yeah. you know, one, one thing, and this is, I'm not an athlete. I know nothing about athletics. I'm just going to say this as a, you know, child abuse professional. I think one <laughs> thing that we could do as a kindness for them is just lift a little of that responsibility and let them know that they can tell us anything, even if we've made a big investment, even if we have made a big family commitment, that that's the point in not pretending like that's not real, but acknowledging it and also saying, you know, you come first. If there's any- You come first, exactly. Your well-being. Yeah. It's so easy, I think, to feel um, sort of trapped by the weight of responsibility, even as an adult, right? We feel that with all of the time commitments and you start feeling like it's all piling on top of you. And you have to take a moment and remember your well-being does come first. You can't do anything for anyone else if you're not taking care of yourself. And so I completely agree that teaching kids that is so important so that they can carry that throughout their lives. because. You're going to do a service to everyone, (laughs) if you know that. You know, as you were saying that, I was thinking about the gymnasts that testified before Congress and, you know, they were talking about their experiences. And I thought at the time, I mean, I wonder if anybody had ever told them that because the way in which they were talking about what had happened and this immense responsibility and feeling like all the country's hopes and dreams had been piled on them, not just their own family and community. Just thought, I wonder if anybody's ever just asked them how they're doing and made it sound like that was important and that somebody really, and and by that, I'm not discounting, you know, parents and others, but I just, it's a huge burden that I think we place on people without realizing it. Yeah. I think that's why it was so incredible for everyone to see Simone Biles at the Olympics when she said, no, this, you know, she was, she was put, she put herself first and that was. Why was that so shocking to see? Wonderful modeling. You know, you're right. We should should question why we were all so surprised, but wonderful modeling for younger people, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Courtney, it's been a delight to see you again and talk to you about these things. And I hope, you know, five years hence, (laughs) when you come back on, we're going to be able to say there's been immense progress in this area because we just care about these kids. You know, we want them to be safe safe and healthy. So thank you. Thanks for all you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to One in 10. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. And for more information about this episode and all of our others, please visit our podcast website at www.1in10podcast.org.